How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayers to take advantage of God's uh, promise that he will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we confess our sins so that we can be spiritually prepared to study the word and we can be spiritually prepared to uh, worship as we study the word this evening. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Father, we're thankful this evening that we can come to you in prayer. We're thankful that you are a God who is ever-present, ready to help us and sustain us and strengthen us, and you are our shield and fortress. And Father, we especially remember this evening the uh, Sinclair family at this time, and we uh, specifically pray for them that you would strengthen them and that this would be a time where they... Uh, grow closer to you and the doctrine that they know is more real to them and their understanding of your promises becomes a uh, very precious time for them to depend upon you and father we just pray that you would um, just uh, this this Saturday at the service that that would be a time to really enable the friends and family that are there to really focus on the word Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might really be able to come alongside and strengthen and encourage this family during this time and that um, we would have opportunities to help out. Father, we pray for us this evening as we study your word that you would challenge us with what we study, help us to understand it, and see how clear your revelation is that we might have a fuller understanding of our so great salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As most of you have read through the announcement that went out yesterday, 13-year-old Zachary Sinclair went to be with the Lord Saturday, or excuse me, Tuesday night, September the 13th, and he will, uh, the the funeral service is going to be at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning at the Kingwood Funeral Home, which is right on 59 North. I'm not sure if it's the Kingwood Boulevard exit or the exit just before it. It's right near that exit, though. So you can check, uh, look at a map, or if you got the email, you can check their website for a map and for directions. It is always tough on a, incredibly tough on a family when a child dies. And it's also tough on their friends, and it's tough on a congregation sometimes. And this is a tremendous opportunity, though, And I think in a reminder for all of us, especially those of you who are parents or grandparents, to be reminded of the fact that you cannot take any day in the life of your family for granted. You can't be guaranteed that tomorrow morning when you wake up that your spouse is going to be there or that your child is going to be there or that your parents are going to be there because the Lord has numbered our days on the earth and we don't know what they are. And any day we could wake up or or just simply wake up in the arms of Jesus or someone in our family could uh, be gone. And it could happen in just, just a moment. There's, there's no guarantee. And I think that it's important for parents especially, and in some cases grandparents, to take the time to talk about these things with their kids. I think this is a, a great learning opportunity and a great teaching moment. Uh, for people in congregation and for families to uh, sit around and talk about issues of life and death and preparation for death and how we respond when somebody uh, near and dear to us dies and that death is sudden. It's one thing to uh, deal with the death of an elderly parent or grandparent who has been ill for some time, and we know that, that that's leading up to the time when they'll be taken to be home with the Lord. 
but there's also those times when it's sudden and it's unexpected and it is a surprise and a shock to us. But we know that it is never a surprise and a shock to God because he is omniscient, because he knows everything, and because he is righteous, we can always just rest in him. And I'm just reminded of Genesis chapter 20 today that that um, I think it's in 1920 where Abraham is questioning God about what he is about to do in bringing judgment to to Sodom. And Abraham ends his his inquiry of God by saying, shall not the God of the universe, the right, God, shall not the judge of all the universe do what is right? And that is such a great verse for us to rest on and rely upon that we know that, that God is the judge of all the universe and he's always going to do the right thing. We may not know it. We may not uh, understand all the ins and outs and the details, and we may not see how all things work together for good, as as Paul says in Romans 8.28, but we know that it does, and that gives us comfort, that gives us strength, that gives us a perspective that that should change how we look at the death of anyone who is a loved one. And I think it's very important for children especially to be prepared for this and to be taught this. I know that uh, due to the training I had when I was young and some things that I thought through when I was a teenager, I think that that really fortified me in a lot of ways. That doesn't mean that when someone near and dear dies and dies suddenly that you don't grieve, but the more we think within our own souls how we are going to face and handle the death and loss of someone and to recognize at some point that you need to take your your spouse, your children, your parents, those who who you love and are close to you and put them in the Lord's hands. And if you haven't put them in the Lord's hands or to the degree that you have failed to put them in the Lord's hands, that degree will impact the grief and sorrow that you go through at the time of death. And it is, uh, it's something I found that a lot of people for many different reasons don't like to, don't like to think about. There was a time in my life when I worked for Earthman Funeral Home here in Houston. And it was a part of my, my job was to go around and to, uh, talk to people about the, the importance of preparing for that eventuality through a pre-need funeral. And I think it's an extremely important thing, and I had uh, some really good discounts at the time, so I took care of my parents that way, which was a, just a tremendous thing when my mother died. But I, feel, I found in doing that that there is such a level of denial among many people, and even even people who who really understand the issues, and it's not a fear for I'm too busy to think about it. And it's, it's a thing that we just want to put on. We don't like thinking about death. We don't want to think about death. We don't want to face the fact that, that tomorrow I may be alone. Tomorrow I may lose my child. It, it, it's hard on us. And because it is, if it's hard on you to, to, and you don't even want to think about it in preparation, think how much more difficult it will be in reality. It's a it's part of our mental attitude as as Christians and as believers is to take what the Word of God says and to stop and think and let it shape how we look at these events in our life, and then and it, then it's it it makes it very different in how it happens when it happens. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve, as the Apostle Paul says, we grieve. Yes, we do but not like those who have no hope. And the difference between the hopeless and those who have hope is the degree to which those who have hope have made that hope a very present reality in their thinking. And so it's very important, I think, to have those family discussions. I think it's another time, and I talked to Mark Friedrich the other day, and I consistently would emphasize this with our prep school teachers, that it is important for them as prep school teachers to try to somehow find the time as they talk to kids, maybe at a church picnic or whatever, but to t- get to know the kids in their prep school classes and to know that they're safe. Because some of the kids that come to prep school come with their grandparents or they come with their friends, 
And, and part of the responsibility of that prep school teacher is to recognize that you are a pastor in some sense to those children. And just as it is part of my responsibility to, as a pastor to do the work of an evangelist, that is true of, of every single believer. And so when those kids come into the, into prep school, they can't just say, well, I, I, I know their parents, they, they took care of it. Really? I know one year when I was at Camp Penile, as a counselor, I had, there was a, uh, uh, young, young, uh, teenage boy there. And that summer, he was in my cabin. And, uh, that particular summer, we came, one night, we came back from the campfire at night. And he came up to me and he said, uh, he said, Robbie, he said, I became a, a believer tonight. And I looked at him. I said, Frank, what? You're a Christian. Uh, he had grown up in Bible church. His brother was, you know, I knew his parents, every, every, the, the family, and met them. And and he said, he said, tonight for the first time I realized I needed to trust that Jesus died for me. I knew all the facts, but I had never thought about the fact that, that did I really believe that Jesus died for me. Now, I don't know if he had believed that in some sense before or that was when, when he it, he was actually saved, but that's when it became very clear to him in a fresh way that particular night. Two months later, he was killed in an automobile accident. And those of us who knew him and had seen him grow up, I, you know, we just had great confidence. We knew that he was a believer, and we knew that, that he had settled the issue with God and so that he was prepared. And that has always been something I, I've remembered. Another thing I've remembered is that... Um, an illustration I heard once that really speaks to this issue, and that is what would happen and what would happen to your mentality if you woke up one morning and as you're getting ready to go off to work, so the doorbell rang, and so you're kind of irritated that somebody's knocking on your door or ringing your doorbell at 7 o'clock or 7.30 in the morning. You go to the door, and there's a man standing there, and he never says anything. He just hands you an envelope, turns around, and walks off. Well, you take the envelope, and you open it, and instead of getting a subpoena, you realize that what you have is uh, $5,000. And every day, 7.30 in the morning, there's a doorbell that rings, and you go to the door, and there's a guy who just hands you an envelope and walks off, and you open it up, and there's another $5,000. And this goes on. And what are you doing at 7.30 the next week? Yeah, you're not in a hurry to get out of your car. You're standing by the door waiting for that doorbell to ring. And, and the next week, you're looking out the window to see where this guy's coming from. And two years later, you've quit work. You know, you've got a regular uh, uh, 401k plan with this money, and you are living the life of luxury. And then one day, he doesn't show up. How do you feel? You're upset. You're angry. The next day, he doesn't show up. The next day, he doesn't show up. Well, you never had any guarantee in the first place that he would show up the first day. Every day is a gift. And see, that's the way it is with every one of our loved ones. Every single day is a gift that we have them that day, and there's no guarantee that we're going to have them tomorrow. There's no guarantee they're going to be there when we get home tonight. There's no guarantee that, that they're going to make it through this service. That's why we just got a defibrillator here, just so any of you are thinking about that. We decided we better be on the safe side here at the church, and so we're going to have the all the deacons are going to be trained on its use and it's going to be mounted outside the door over here but we just never know and part of leadership one of the most important elements of leadership is to think through the worst case scenarios and prepare for them and drill for them and that means having these kinds of discussions with your kids and and uh, helping them think through what happens at death and dying so that, that it's a clear concept and it's not something that they would be fearful of. It's not something that they're, that, that, that's the unknown. And uh, this is something I'm going to uh, be encouraging the congregation with uh, frequently in the, uh, in the coming weeks. So we need to be prepared for this. I think this is just part of being a good parent, a good leader, a good teacher, a um, good grandparent is make sure that your kids are prepared and make sure that those kids understand the gospel. As parents, uh, I know many of you uh, don't have ch babies or infants right now, but you may have grandchildren. And then uh, 
Uh, but this is this is very important. I know my parents explained the gospel to me when I was six years old. One year, when I was uh, working over at a TNP, I was looking back through the records of when the uh, Baraka Church moved to Sage Road, and the first Sunday at Sage Road was Mother's Day, 1959. All right, and I know that that year. That was the year that I that my parents uh, explained the gospel to me, and I know where we were living. We were living over on Wedgwood in Bel Air, and the first week of June, the house where my dad now lives was built, and we moved into that house. So that's a three day, three week window of being at Sage Road and living in that house on on Wedgwood, and I'm pretty sure that it was the, probably that Mother's Day that uh, Pastor Theme emphasized to the parents that they needed to give the gospel to their kids. And so my parents went home and made sure I understood the gospel. And uh, and that's when I, I trusted Christ. And I know that that's the first time it was really clear to me that I, uh, I understood the gospel and believed in Jesus and ran down the street to tell uh, my, my best friend. So it's important to do that. I know I had a friend at one time who was a... Um, who's a uh, good news club teacher, worked with Child Evangelism Fellowship, and she taught two or three afternoons a week, taught good news clubs for kids. And she had her little two-year-old girl that she took along with her and would you know, sit down in the front row, and one of the older kids would kind of watch her, and she would give a good news club. And Ginger must have been about two and a half. And on the way home one, one day, Ginger looked up at her mom and said, all those kids want to trust Jesus as Savior. Can I do it now, Mom? <laughs> so you never know just what those kids are hearing, what they're understanding, and when they're ready to to uh, trust in Christ. And I think a lot of times parents in our culture have a tendency to leave everything to the schools or to the Sunday school teachers or to some someplace else, but nothing will be as important to you as you get older than knowing that you were the one who uh, explained the gospel to your kids and made that clear to them and have that uh, wonderful memory that when they trusted Christ as their Savior. So let me just encourage you in that. Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans. Turn in our Bibles to Romans, uh, Romans chapter 3. Last time I put this outline up on the screen, I'm going to do it again just to give us the context that Romans is talking about the righteousness of God. And this is first introduced, the phrase is first used in Romans 1.17. Those two verses, 16 and 17, should be read together. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek or for the Gentile. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So that sets the theme of Romans, which is the righteousness of God. In the that the introduction ends with verse 17 and 118 to 11:36 is focuses on God's gracious gift of perfect righteousness through faith alone in Christ alone. Now the first subdivision in that section is 118 down to 320 which we concluded two lessons ago. God's righteousness condemns all members of the human race and th- this demonstrates the need for every human being to acquire God's righteousness. You can't just get into heaven on your own. We have to have the righteousness that fits God's standard. First thing Paul says is that God's condemnation of the human race is based on their rejection of him by the human race, which leads God in his justice to delivering the human race from mankind over to his own desires. We suffer the consequences of our rejection. The second direction humans move toward then is emphasizing their own morality. So in one sense, they go towards licentiousness or antinomianism, where they just reject all standards and they just um, live however they want to, and there's a degradation into more and more overt evil and uh, perversion. 
And then the first five verses of chapter 2, which is the second point, there are others who move in the direction of morality, thinking that somehow I can be good enough. They recognize that morality is necessary to have a productive, stable society. Third point that Paul makes is that the universality of human failure uh, will be demonstrated when God judges everyone on the basis of works. All will fail. Our works aren't good enough. And then fourth, God also condemns the Jew because of his trust in religious externals. Uh, The Jews thought that because they were given the law, they had the covenant with Abraham signified by circumcision, that this meant that that they had an automatic get-out-of-jail-free card, but it didn't. It just didn't do that. It just gave them a, it just gave them a, um, a place of privilege. But it didn't get them saved. So therefore, Paul concludes in Romans three nine to eighteen that all are under sin, Jew and Gentile alike. And his conclusion, I see, I have a, lost a paragraph in the in this next slide. The conclusion is. Uh, Then he gives a conclusion in 6, and then uh, the conclusion is the application of the law is that all the world is guilty before God and that the law is not the source for justification but the means for the full knowledge of sin. So then we come to B, the fact of justification, which is the next section from 3.21 to 5.21. Justification will be defined and explained, and it is the imputation of, that is the crediting of Christ's righteousness or God's righteousness that is then acquired by faith alone in Christ alone. This is explained in 3.21 to 5.21. Now, for those who think that somehow we can get righteousness or for the Jew who thinks that somehow they can get righteousness through the law, we have statements from the uh, Torah, from the uh, Ketuvim and the, and the Nevi'im here, uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20, Solomon says, There is none righteous. There is not a righteous man on the earth who doeth good and sinneth not. Isaiah in Isaiah 64.6 says, All we are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Now Paul builds on this, and in verse 20, as he concluded that section, he stated, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, this doesn't refer to simply uh, the externals of Jewish ritual. That's not the term. The term refers to to obedience to all of the law and an emphasis on morality. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. This explains what I pointed out a minute ago, that, that the law wasn't given as a means to get righteousness, that if I just just do the law and I perfectly then I'll get into heaven. I'll know I have eternal life. But it's to show that we can't do it on our own, that man is helpless, hopeless, and it's impossible for us to do anything whatsoever uh, to save ourselves. So we looked at this phrase last time on the meaning of the works of the law because, as I pointed out, I'm not going to spend a lot. I'm just going to refer to this now and then. I'm not going to belabor the point or spend a tremendous amount of time talking about this, but there are... Those within our congregation who have family members, there are those within this congregation who know pastors, there are those in this congregation whose children are attending a couple of churches that have been influenced by what, what this theology that is called the New Perspectives on Paul. And we have to understand a little bit about what the, what the ics, acts, and spasms are of the day so that as you are out there in the world outside the doors of this church and you're talking and interacting with people, you can understand what some of the things are that are going on. And one of this, this, these elements in this new perspective of Paul idea is that Paul really wasn't talking about condemning all morality here. He's just condemning by the works of the law just the idea of ritual of the law only. But that is, uh, and I'll spend more time showing why that, that's not true, but the phrase refers to all human efforts. And that's clear from many passages that we've seen. For example, the Isaiah 64, 6 passage I mentioned a minute ago that all of our works of righteousness, not our works of unrighteousness, but our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So how can we be just? How can we be righteous before God? 
couple of other verses that I haven't mentioned before, also from the writings of the Old Testament, Psalm 143, verse 2, where the psalmist says, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, pleading with God. Don't enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living. Now, no one is one of those phrases that doesn't leave any exceptions. There's no holes, there's no trap doors, there's no escape clause, there's no asterisk or footnote. It says no one in living is righteous. It is a blanket condemnation from the Torah that everyone is guilty of sin. And then in Job 9, Job 9 verse 2, Job asks in his dialogue with his, with his three friends, he asks... Um, Truly, I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? In the context of of Job 9, Job is lost everything. In the first couple of chapters, he lost his his, uh, home, he lost his possessions, he lost his children, he lost his health, and his three friends come to encourage him. We all hope we don't have friends like Job has. And they look at him and they say, the, the knee-jerk reaction of most people is, if you're going through this kind of suffering, you must have done something to deserve it. And there is this thought in, in, in the human mind that somehow if a person goes through intense adversity, then God must be punishing them for something that they've done. Of course, the flip side would be that someone who isn't apparently going through any adversity must be richly blessed by God. And that, too, is a wrong, superficial uh, judgment. And so they come to Job and they say, they start talking. You have this dialogue that goes back and forth between each of them, and there's about three series of of, uh, sets of dialogue where one will take his position and then the other takes his view and the other. And it's all various manifestations of the view that somehow... If God's taking you through this, if God is, is letting this happen, you must have done something to deserve it. You're basically at fault. And in a previous dialogue in Job four, seventeen, when Eliphaz, one of his friends, says, Can mankind be just before God? He's basically saying, No no one can be just before God, so you deserve this. And he say, Eliphaz says, Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And his conclusion is, no, we can't, so therefore you deserve everything you've got. And Job is questioning that. And in Job 9, 2, he says, truly, I know it's so, but how can a man be righteous before God? And that's really the $64,000 question. How are we righteous before God? And that's what Paul answers in Romans, is to tell us how we get this gift of, of righteousness. And what's interesting is you go through Job, and Job's, Job and his three friends wrestle with the question of why has this horrible, these horrible things happened to Job? Job, and, and in fact, in chapter 9, he, he begins to raise this issue. Is how, can, how, can I, how can I dialogue with God? How can I question God? How can I uh, sit down and reason with God face to face? about why this has happened, and he's saying he can't. And finally, in Job, when we get towards the end end of Job, uh, God begins to speak to Job, and J- God answers Job's question, sort of. He answers him by giving him about a 100 questions, and he never really explains why it is that Job went through what he went through because the conclusion is that God is omniscient, and God understands all, you know, 100 billion elements that go into any event, and we can't comprehend five of them at the same time. And so all we're left with is this is what God is pointing out to Job by asking all these questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I uh, created the sun? Where were you when I created the moon? It's all to point out that God's magnificence, his omnipotence, his um, uh, ability, his wisdom, his skill, his knowledge of everything, and how puny we are and how limited and finite and restricted our knowledge is that we can't, we can't understand what he is doing. And so all we're left with is trusting him. 
And so Job has a very, there's a very famous verse. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And that focus is, it's not an empty faith. It's not a leap of faith. It is a faith that is based on the, the content and the object of the person of God and his character and understanding who God is and, and his capabilities and that he is so far beyond me and he truly is the God of the universe and he's completely in control that I just have to reach a point where I have to relax and trust him. I may not understand it now. I may never understand it, but God will. God understands it and he's in control. And so God never answers a question of why these things happened but through asking the series of 80 or 90 questions, he may, Job recognizes that he does, his knowledge can't even approach the knowledge of God. So these passages, though, all emphasize that there is, that no one is righteous before God. This is the continuous testimony throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. So now Paul starts the new sections. We covered this a little bit last time. And he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, this opening phrase, but the righteousness of God, is the same phrase that we have back in Romans one seventeen. And in Romans one seventeen, I want you to turn back there because I went back and looked at my notes. I may have taught something verbally that wasn't in my notes, but I don't think I did. And I just sort of skipped over this phrase because I think at points I alluded to what it meant, but I don't think I really stopped and focused on it. For in it, the righteousness of God. What does that mean, the righteousness of God? And as I've been reading through a number of different commentaries the last few weeks, I kept hitting certain things and, and coming back to, to this section, this phrase, and I would read things, and they weren't quite computing with me. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience where you're studying something and you read over certain things again and again. You read that, and only about the 15th or 20th time does it suddenly kind of dawn on you that that you thought they were talk they should be talking about X, but they're really talking about Y. And now that you understand that they're talking about Y, everything that they've said makes sense, but they're wrong or you were wrong or something like that. It's part of the growth process we all go through in learning anything. So what does this phrase mean, the righteousness of God? Well, what I've discovered is that in most of the commentaries that I have looked at, and I even have one um, uh, one, uh, one document, one tool that, that summarizes for uh, for us all of the positions that are taken and attributes each position to all of the different commentaries that that are out there. Uh, it's a it's a summary, so it'll say righteousness of God, and it'll say there are three views. View number one. And then it explains that view, and then it lists like 30 different commentaries that take that view. And then it says view number two, and it lists one commentary, and then it lists a third view, and then it lists any. I don't like any of the views. And that is the idea that, and, and almost every commentary I consulted took it this way, that the phrase the righteousness of God here refers to God's imputed righteousness to man. It's not talking about God's own righteousness, but it is talking about uh, God's, it's talking about the righteousness that God has given to us. So let me read something for you. I want to read this. I'm not picking on him. The man who wrote this was a very dear old colleague of Dr. Chaffer's for many years. He was the uh, librarian at Dallas Seminary. And he always stood for the truth. But what he wrote in the Bible Knowledge Commentary on Romans 1.17 is a little confusing. And I realized, I took this example because I thought it was the most confusing. But he just says it in a more confusing way. Others say it in a more erudite way, but they're just it's just as confusing. This is John Whitmer's comment on this verse in uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. He said, 
This righteousness is not God's personal attribute. However, since it comes from God. Now, what that means is he's taken the view that righteousness of God here means righteousness from the source of God. So he's taken it as a genitive of source, uh, the righteousness that comes from God. He says, because this righteousness comes from God, it is consistent with his nature and standard. Robertson, now this is a reference to A.T. Robertson. A.T. Robertson wrote a, a grammar in the early 1900s on the Greek New Testament that's about six inches thick. And he was is considered one of the most renowned uh, Greek grammarians uh, of all time, Southern Baptist, great work. And he also wrote a smaller uh, four- or five-volume work called The Word Pictures in the New Testament, which some of you might have. Robertson calls it a God, quote, a God kind of righteousness. In response to faith, this righteousness is imputed by God in justification and imparted progressively in regeneration and sanctification, culminating in glorification when standing and state become identical. Whitmer goes on to say righteousness and justify, though seemingly unrelated in English, are related in Greek. Now let me kind of explain what he just said so you understand this. It's, it's, it's really important. This is going to help us sharpen our thinking on what it means to be given the righteousness of God. He says, in response to faith, this righteousness is imputed by God in justification. So he's drawn a distinction between the righteousness that's imputed and the righteousness of God's character. Now, what's wrong with that? The righteousness that we're given according to Scripture is the righteousness of God. But I found, and I really hadn't caught this, that these writers aren't clear on that. That the righteousness that is, is imputed is not something that is quantitatively given to us. And this is one of those areas that's really confusing. Let, let me take you to the most extreme, egregious form of this. In Roman Catholic theology... They believe that righteousness, the, under the doctrine of imputation and justification, that the righteousness that, that we have as a Christian at salvation is a moral infusion of God's righteousness. What that means is that you're changed morally. According to Roman Catholic doctrine, you, there is a moral shift that occurs because you are get actually given quantitatively the righteousness of God. That means you're, they would translate, you are made justified, or you're made righteous. Now, when Martin Luther came to a saving understanding of the Scriptures, he did so by reading Romans, and he came to understand that, that this Roman Catholic view of infused righteousness was wrong, that we're not made righteous, but that the idea that Paul is talking about is that we are declared righteous. We're not actually given anything quantitatively. Now, you've heard me give this illustration before, so it's not new. This is very similar to going to the bank and, and having a cosign on a loan that you may, I, I tried to do this in college, didn't work out, didn't get the bid on the house, but uh, I wanted to purchase a house, and I didn't have the money. I'd been out of college maybe a year and did not have much money, and I was a school teacher in Texas, which means that you didn't have the hope of ever having much money. And so uh, I have found a really good deal on a house over here in Spring Branch, and I wanted to put it, uh, uh, I could make the payments, but I just didn't have the credit with the bank, and so my dad was going to co-sign on it. And that meant that instead of looking at my credit and my and the amount of money in my bank account, the the, the loan officers would look and the mortgage company would look at the money in his bank account and look at his credit rating, and the loan would be given to me. On, on the basis of what he had, not on the basis of what was in my account. No money was being given to me. I wasn't going to become wealthier 
but they would declare me to be solvent and capable of fulfilling the obligations of the mortgage legally by virtue of what he had in his account. It's a legal declaration. It's a real thing. It is not a fiction. Some today in this new new uh, new perspectives of Paul doctrine have taken this view, which is the traditional Luther, Calvin, Zwingli view of justification by faith that is the that was the foundation of the Protestant Reformation. And they say this is a legal fiction. Men like N.T. Wright and James Dunn and others call this a legal fiction. And they reject that, 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 that there has to be the positive works of morality in your life. Well, that, that's why they have to redefine works of the law and works of righteousness and all of this other stuff in the, in the uh, process of their theology. So it's not a legal fiction. It is a legal crediting of righteousness to our account. It doesn't make us righteous. One of the problems that a lot of that a lot of uh, non-Christians have is that they look around, they see Christians who are failures. They're moral failures. They're criminals. They're uh, they have no character. They have no understanding of, of of the truth. No application of the word in their life. And they look at them and they say, well, I'm a much better person than they are. I I'm, I'm, uh, have greater standards and values and ethics than that person who's a Christian does, and he claims to do all this. He must be a hypocrite. But he, they, they don't understand that, that becoming a Christian doesn't make you any better because you're, what qualifies you is not your righteousness. You, we are not made righteous. We're not changed. We don't all of a sudden become more righteous or more moral. There's no reduction or dilution of the sin nature capacity. And that's part of the problem in, in, in the whole thing of lordship salvation that I talk about is that, that they don't understand that in, in lordship salvation, they think there is some kind of reduction in the uh, potency of the sin nature because they'll look at people and say, well, if you did that sin, if you did X, Y, or Z, then you can't really be a Christian. Again, that's a misunderstanding, a failure to understand the, the foundational doctrine of justification by faith alone, that we are credited with Christ's righteousness so that the Supreme Court of Heaven declares us to be, to be righteous. So that there's, there can't be, the point that I'm making here is we can't distinguish, as if they're two different things, God's attribute of righteousness and what's imputed to us. That's like God's attribute of righteousness in the analogy would be the money in my dad's bank account. And the way they're explaining it is a distinction here is the, the, the righteousness of God that is separate from his attribute that's given to us would, be, would imply that there's money that actually is transferred from his bank account to my bank account. But that's not what happens in, in a cosign. It is, it's credited. It is legally recognized and imputed as, as ours, but it's not, it doesn't make us righteous. So... When we look at Romans 117, it says the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, there's a second element here that's important for understanding that this isn't talking about the ongoing imputation of righteousness. And that's the, that's the verb there that is translated revealed. It's the same word that we have in Romans 3.21. That's why when I hit this verse and I was reading on it and everybody goes back and says, this is the same righteousness, that's, it's the imputed righteousness, the same righteousness that Romans 1.17 is talking about. Wait a minute. That's not the same. They are the same, but that's not right. So it finally dawned on me what was going on here. The verb that is translated is revealed is a perfect tense verb in the Greek. Now, some of you have been around a while, understand what that means. Others of you still scratch your head whenever I throw out grammar, and I understand that. Perfect tense means, talks about, means that the action of the verb is completed action. It's completed and over and done with at some point in the past, and the writer uses it to either emphasize the present ongoing results of that completed past action 
or he's talking about the completion of the action. He's emphasizing the fact that it was completed in a former time. It's this kind of word that you would have if you have a mortgage on your house and you pay it off and they write on it paid in full and you say, my mortgage is paid. See, I used a present tense verb there in English, but that would reflect the idea of a Greek perfect tense that it was paid off in the past with the ongoing results that today I relax, I don't have a mortgage payment. That's the same tense that Jesus used before he physically died on the cross, and he said, it is finished. That's how it's translated in English, because it's emphasizing the present results of a completed past action. Nothing can be added to that. So it seems to me that this verb here that's, that is revealed is a, as a perfect passive indicative, indicating that the revelation of this righteousness is something that was completed and over and done with in past times so that we are experiencing present ongoing results. It is a fixed final past tense idea. That can only apply to the character of God, not to imputation unless people are no longer receiving that righteousness. It's completed. So the verb indicates that it's talking about something completed, something that is set in the past. And then the context also indicates this because there's a contrast between verse 17 and verse 18. Verse 17 talks about the righteousness of God, and verse 18 talks about the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is, as I've pointed out many times, is a figure of speech that is describing God's justice, the application of God's justice. So again, it's talking about an attribute of God, just as righteousness of God is, must therefore be talking about an attribute of God. Now, since we're talking about this phrase, the righteousness of God... We're going to have a little grammar lesson so everybody can sort of unplug and uh, go to sleep right now, right? This is not always the easy stuff, so we're going to look at the real scary stuff of understanding genitives. And just as I was reading these verses tonight in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. See, there's a genitive. Anytime you see of, that's a genitive. Anytime you see an apostrophe S, that's a genitive. Genitives are used to express possession. This, this is John's car. That apostrophe, yes, indicates possession. It indicates source. Um, you know, as I said earlier, the, uh, something, this can be the scripture of God. It's the scripture that comes from God. It can, genitives can describe a number of different things. So we have to figure out, well, how, how do we really understand this? Because while the, idea that a word's in the genitive is clear from the ending of the word. It doesn't tell us what the nuance of the genitive is. There's nothing objective to go to. You have to, you have to think about the context and the sense of what is being said to identify what it is. So usually uh, you look at it after you've had some practice, you can pretty much isolate it to one or two options to begin with. But in the beginning, you pretty much go through the, a list that you see in a grammar, and you check off, oh, well, it's not that, it can't be that, it's not that, it's not that. It's a process of, of exclusion. Now, there's a d big debate that it's going to come into play in what we're going to look at in the next paragraph in Romans, dealing with what's called a subjective and objective genitive. Now, for those of you who have heard me teach this before and it's gone over your head, it'll go over your head again. It went over my head until about the middle of my third year after seminary. I mean, I knew all the answers. I could pass the test, but it was like like uh, academic knowledge, and it really didn't penetrate deeply into uh, the the depths of my consciousness. So this is not necessarily easy stuff, but I'm going to try to make it uh, easy for you tonight. A subjective genitive simply means that the noun in the genitive, so if you have the phrase faith of Christ, the noun in the genitive is of Christ. So the noun in the genitive performs the action of what's called the noun of action. So words like faith, love, these are nouns, but they describe things that are, are actions. In an objective genitive, the noun in the genitive receives the action in the noun of action. 
So you have action nouns. You know, we usually just think of verbs as action words, but you have nouns that describe those actions. Usually, usually, what happened? There we go. Usually, it's the same word. Love. I love you. I just used love as a verb. God's love. Now I use love as a noun. And usually, in, in Greek especially, the noun and the verb will come from the same root. So that in, in English, uh, uh, kingdom and king are somewhat cognates. Uh, but ruling and king are not. But in Greek, they are cognate. So you can't always tell from English what's, what's going on in the Greek. So you have words like love describes a noun, I mean an action, love. Hope can be a verb or can be a noun. Righteousness, this is where the same word is used in for dekaio, uh, to make or declare righteous. You'll hear me say that instead of justification, just so we're clear. And dekaiosune for righteousness is the noun. The coming, you can talk about, um, I'm coming to uh, church in the morning. You can talk about Jesus coming. The first was a verb, the second's a noun. Or revelation is a noun, reveal is a verb. So when you see certain kinds of, of nouns with a genitive following, you have to start thinking about what's, what, how you're going to explain that. Let me give you a couple of examples. Maybe this will make it a little easier. In Matthew twenty four twenty seven, we have a subjective genitive. So shall the coming, that's a noun in the Greek, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. We're talking about the Son of Man's coming. The Son of Man performs the action that's described by that noun of action. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is it love toward Christ? Or is it Christ's love? It's Christ's love. He's the, he's the one who's performing the action that's described by the noun of action. So you see there's a certain ambiguity in some of these genitives, and you have to stop and say, oh, what's, what are we talking about here? Because in other places you can have love of Christ and it's love for Christ. So context has to tell you what we're, what, what's going on there. So a subjective genitive is that the noun in the genitive, which I've underlined there, son of man or Christ, is the, what's actually performing the action described by the noun of action. An objective genitive, on the other hand, is where the, the noun that's in the genitive receives the action of the noun of action that's described by the noun of action. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't talking about the Holy Spirit making blasphemy. It's talking about blasphemy directed toward the Holy Spirit. So Matthew 12.31 says literally it's blasphemy of the Spirit, but it means blasphemy to or against the Spirit. In Romans 3.25, we have this, which is in, we'll be coming to shortly, whom God publicly displayed as a demonstration of the uh, as a demonstration of the righteous of the righteousness of Him or of His righteousness. So that's talking about righteousness to Him, uh, uh, demonstrating the righteousness to Him. So it would be His righteousness. Uh, God publicly displayed Jesus Christ in order to demonstrate His righteousness. Let me give you some a couple of phrases that are ambiguous at times. Love of God. Sometimes it refers to God's love toward us. God performs the action of love toward us. Sometimes it refers to our love for God, directed toward God. So just when you see the phrase love of God, you have to look at the context and say, well, are we talking about love toward God or love from God? Same thing with the phrase faith of Christ, which is where the battle is taking place. Is this talking about Christ performing the action of the noun of action, Christ's faith or faithfulness? Or are we talking about faith toward Christ? We have the phrase the righteousness of God. 
that enters into some of the discuss, uh, problems as well. I've already covered that, so I'm not going to repeat it. Now we get to Romans 3.28. We see that, uh, let me go back to just skip that, go to Romans 3.22. We read, even the righteousness of God. Now is that God's own righteousness? If it's God's righteousness, it's not imputed righteousness. It's his, it's his attribute that is credited to us. The righteous, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. But that's a genitive there. That's that phrase, pistis is the, is the noun, and then you have Jesus Christ in the genitive. So there are many more piling on this bandwagon today that it should be translated faith, the faithfulness of Christ. In the New English translation called the Net Bible, they have a translation note in the margin they translate in the text the faithfulness of Christ, and in the margin they said, our faith in Christ. They write, a decision is difficult here. Though traditionally translated faith in Jesus Christ, an increasing number of New Testament scholars, see, that's always a debater's technique to say, see, we're going to get on the bandwagon. They may be wrong, but we're going to go with them. An increasing number of New Testament scholars are arguing that pistis Christu, that's Christu, that O-U indicates it's a genitive, and similar phrases in Paul, here in verse 26, Galatians 2.16 and other passages, involves a subjective genitive and means Christ's faith or Christ's faithfulness. Now, this is a real problem. It's a problem because what is the object of faith in the Scriptures? You think about the Gospel of John, where we're to believe in him, and he always uses the prepositional phrase ace and then the object of, uh, of the pronoun object. We, he's the object of faith. It's not his faithfulness that saves us. It's faith toward him. That's the context of what Paul's saying in Romans. This is what Philippians 1.29 clearly states, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, that's the object. Sometimes that same idea can be expressed by that objective genitive. So it's it's clear to the traditional views, the traditional view, because it's the right translation, it's the right theology. We see the same thing in Galatians two sixteen, faith in Christ. But it's there. It's that subjective genitive again. So I just want to um, give you some other examples. All these underlined phrases are in the genitive but they all are objective genitives that express it. And it's clear it can't be the other way. Jesus said to them, have faith in God. Have, literally, have the, have the faith of God. Now, he's not talking about saying God's faith. He's talking about who they're supposed to believe in, faith in God. He uses an objective genitive to express that. In Acts 3.16, Peter says, in his name through faith in his name. Now, it's clearly it's not his name's faith. That doesn't make sense. But Peter expresses this with an objective genitive, faith of his name, expressing what the object of faith is. James 2.1 is another case. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. Now, is he talking about Jesus Christ's faith or faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, context makes it clear. If it's Christ's faith, it makes no sense whatsoever. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3 uses um, uh, 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 the patience of, of hope, ceasing your, your or, you know, excuse me, it uses your work of faith. It's not your faith's work, but work uh, directed toward faith, your labor of love, patience of hope. Philippians 3.8, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowledge of Christ. It's not Christ's knowledge. It's our knowledge directed toward Christ. So those are just some examples of how the this genitival phrase related to of Christ indicates that it should be understood as faith towards the object of Christ. And it's found in many places. So when we come to passages in, in Romans 3 and in Galatians 2, we can be confident that 
the traditional translation that we find in uh, Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God, that is God's own righteousness which is imputed to us through faith of Jesus Christ literally, but it means faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe. So we have we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness based on faith in Christ and in Christ alone. So we'll come back next time and start with uh, wrapping that up again, a little review, and then go forward into the rest of this great paragraph. Two weeks. Two weeks? That's right. No class next Thursday night. Uh, we'll have class Tuesday night, but no class next Thursday night. Okay, remember that. Those of you live streaming, no class next Thursday night. So in two weeks. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, and we pray that you will help us to think through what we studied this evening, even though it's a little difficult with some of the grammar, that uh, you'll just help us to, to understand at least the significance of it so that our confidence in your word will increase. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.